Good morning, Cross Point. So children can be released to the back. I see Miss Jenny back there waving. You'll see her in the back if you want to make your way there for Children's Church. So he is risen. Right? Isn't it amazing that this is, we still celebrate. Like it's not just on Easter that we get to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. It is every day. It is the reason why we gather is to surrender our hearts to the glory of Jesus Christ, who he is and all that he has done, is why we're gathered here this morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be beginning in verse 24 uh, this morning as we continue following Jesus together through the Gospel of Mark. Um, the, The passages we're going to be looking at this morning are unusual interactions that people have had with Jesus. Like we're going to see in the first account, it seems as though Jesus refers to the woman as a dog. In the next account, Jesus is going to stick his fingers in the ear of a deaf man. Like these are the accounts we're looking at. And for some, you might see these and immediately just take a step back. Like what's happening? But if we'll press in, we will see that, that these passages help us understand the nature of faith and the character of God. This is what is on display, because what we'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark is he's not just telling us what Jesus can do, but in his description of how he accomplishes his purposes is a description for us to help us see the weight in the nature of faith. And we need that. Like, if we're honest with one another, We've gone through seasons when it's dry, right? When we've cried out to God and it seems like he's silent. Like, Lord, are you listening? Are my prayers falling on deaf ears? Do you hear me crying out? Or every time we ask for something, it's like the answer is no. God, do you care about my situation? How do we respond in those situations? And what we are going to see in today's passage is the nature of a persistent and humble faith. And then we're going to see the character of God that that draws near, that is compassionate and understanding. So let's pray and then dive in. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have together, together as a church family, Lord, to open up your word, to humble our hearts before you. And Lord, we ask that you would speak. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that as you speak and as you work, our own hearts would be transformed in the process. Lord, help us to not only be distracted by how you're interacting, but to understand your heart behind that and and why you're interacting as you are. And what that means for us, Lord, is as we step out into a new week, walking and following you. So, Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beginning in Mark Mark chapter 7, in verse 24, it says, From there he arose. Now, I know we're not even into the passage, but just understanding what has preceded in chapter 7. We saw the, the religious leaders in Capernaum come around Jesus and the disciples and say, 
Why aren't they washing their hands like we've instructed them? There's religious traditions. They're not following them. They're unclean to be rejected. And Jesus is going to confront them. And he's going to say, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And Jesus is going to press into the point that what comes out of a person's heart is more important than what goes in. And it's in this heart then, and in this confrontation, that then we pick up in 24. And from there, he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Saddam. This was a region north of Capernaum that was mainly a Gentile area, though it had been promised to Abraham and the descendants, the people did not walk in obedience to God. And they became a thorn in the side of Israel. And so many of the Old Testament denouncements were spoken against this region. It was namely non-Jewish, in rebellion, not serving or worshiping God. And Jesus goes there not to minister, but for a retreat. And we see that here in chapter 7. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. And then it goes on, but immediately a woman with a little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, if we combine this, Matthew 7 with Mark, sorry, <laughs> Mark chapter 7 with Matthew chapter 15, it's the same account and we get this full picture of what's happening. Because what we see is, is this woman, this Gentile woman recognizes Jesus. Now, you have to understand what that statement means when Mark is telling us this is a Syrophoenician woman from this region. This was immediately classifying her within that culture. See, to say that, that this was a woman, though the Jewish culture remarkably treated women better than other cultures at this time, they still did not see men and women as equal. Women were considered lower at this time. And to say that she was not a Jew that she was a Gentile, in the Jewish mindset, they refer to them as dogs, ceremonially unclean. And this isn't like your pet dog that you like. This is a nuisance, a stray dog, a, a mongrel on the street that, that, that is worth, like, lower than worthless. It's a nuisance to be rid of. And so this woman comes to Jesus, and it says she pleads. She's pleading, my little girl, my little girl is sick. She has a demon. Would you heal her? And it says Jesus does not respond. He is silent. He does not utter even a word. And the way that it's written shows that this woman, she's pleading over and over again, oh, Lord, son of David, heal my little girl. Heal my little girl, oh, Lord. Son of David, hear my, heal my little girl over and over again until the point when the disciples turn and they look to Jesus and they're like, can you make her stop? She's bothering us. Like, this is getting annoying. Can you make her go away? And then Jesus turns and faces the woman. It feels as though a divine choreography has taken place. Everybody has now is on the right place on the stage as God writes his story 
in this woman's life. See, the disciples had just been accused of themselves being unclean by the religious leaders, right? They haven't washed their hands the right way, Jesus. They're unclean. It's about the heart, leaders. It's about the heart. But now the disciples are here. And, oh, here's this woman, a Gentile. Lord, she's unclean. Can you make her go away? And Jesus turns and faces the woman. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This statement raises the intensity of the situation. It is about to reveal what is inside this woman's heart. See, if we break down even this parable and what Jesus is saying, it's saying, look, the children here at the table are, are the, the Jewish people, the people of God, a people whom God has called to himself so that they would be a blessing to all peoples. The bread that is being given to the children is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand, and it was to be preached first to the Gentile, and first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. And the dog are the Gentile people. Now, some say that Jesus is softening this phrase that was used culturally because he uses a particular diminutive form of the word that means puppy rather than just dog. And so they're like, he's actually softening this. Others have said, actually, that was just a term that was used during the time. We don't know. Regardless, we cannot just say, ah, he didn't actually mean that. He said that. And it's hard, and it raises the intensity of the situation. I believe the purpose of why Jesus says this is to reveal what is in her heart that she is, that Jesus is ultimately going to hold out as a great faith, as an example to the disciples who have seen the failure of the religious leaders and who have seen their own failure of faith and is going to hold up what is in their mind, the lowest form, he's going to hold up and say, this is a great faith. This is a faith to which we should aspire. Because there's many ways at this point that she could have responded. Right? Like, if we think about it, like, he just said this. She could have said, you said what? You said I'm a dog? You liking me to a dog just because I'm a Gentile? Aren't I made in the image of God too? How dare you say this about me? What right do you have? You can't call me that. You can't say that to me. And she could have gone in the defense of herself to try to justify herself before Jesus. But she doesn't do that. She could have just looked in at herself as well and just with self-condemnation and said, well, I'm worthless. Nobody else cares about me or my, my daughter, so why should he? I'm just going to go and suffer in my own loneliness and as well walk away. But instead, she responded with a persistent and humble faith. This Gentile woman is the only person recorded in Scripture that then places herself back into the parable of Jesus. 
In her response, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Think of those two words alone, even before we look at the rest of her phrase. I am who you say I am. Yes. No defense. No pride. No sense. No, no, no. Let me tell you. Yes, Lord. If this is who you say I am, I am. But who you say you are, you are. There is a faith here in the mercy of God. Look at what she says. Even dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord. But, but even if you say I'm a dog and I'm not a child who has a place at the table, even the crumbs of your mercy that fall on the ground are sufficient for my need. Right? She's saying yes. She doesn't defend herself. But she presses into the mercy and the character of God. You are who you say you are. You say you're the Messiah and I believe that you're the Messiah. You say that, that you're the Lord and you're the Lord. I trust you. And even the crumbs that fall from the table, I'll take whatever. Whatever you would allow me to have, I'll take, I'll hold, I need. Do you see the humility that would approach God in such a way? And then Jesus would then look to her and say, what a great faith. Your faith is great. And her daughter was healed instantly. Instantly. Think about what this means for us. Like if, if we want to say, what is the nature for us of a humble and persistent faith? How do you respond when God doesn't do what you want? Like, when you cry out in their silence, when you cry out for God, he doesn't even utter a word. It's only silence. When you cry out, and it feels like others are annoyed that it's the same prayer request over and over again, and you're crying out, but then he responds, and, and the answer is no. It's not affirmative, and you're crying out, and you're crying out. How do we respond? Because there's so often our hearts can become embittered, we can become discouraged, and, and we can blame God for that. We can say, God, you're making me feel this way. But in reality, the circumstances are exposing what's in our heart. And so often what gets exposed is pride. This is what can get exposed in our heart, that God is merciful, he is good, he is kind, he is compassionate, even in his silence. And in his mercy, and in his silence, he exposes sin in our hearts so that we might be able to walk in forgiveness and grace. That is a good thing, because so often what I find in my own life is it's the same sin of pride that shows itself in two different ways. One is self-grandeur. Like, I think I'm owed something. God, look what I've done. This was the religious leaders, right? I've washed my hands the right way, God. I'm wearing the right clothes, God. Like, don't I deserve this from you now? I've done these things, and this is the kind of relationship we have. I do this, you do that. I'm doing my part. Why aren't you doing yours? And faith is reduced to presuming upon God. We presume upon him by because we say, 
I've done this, and now I presume that you will do that. And when you don't hold up your end, then why should I keep doing this? And we want to deal with God in this way. Now, this breaks down in so many ways. But one way that I think we see running rampant throughout our, our, our culture is so often in the faith movement. This name it and claim it. This sense of, I do this, and God must do that. I, I talked to a young man who felt called to go onto the, the mission field, and, and I was interviewing him as, as part of a missions organization, and he had all of this debt, and we were asking him, like, is this student loans, or what happened? And he said, all of my credit cards are maxed out. Because my pastor, the church, was doing a fundraiser for a building. And they said that whatever I gave, God would give back ten times. And so the way to fund this missions calling was to max out all my credit cards so that God would give me back ten times as much. And now he's set here in debt because of the greed of a pastor that called him to presume upon God. And calling it right See, the, the, we don't deal with God in this kind of exchange. Like, if you do this, then God's going to give you that. He's sovereign. But pride can fool our hearts in our own way. When something bad happens this week, and it's like, but I went to church. Right? Why are you going to let this happen? The same prideful sin begins to take our heart as we bargain with God. But the other side of pride isn't just look what I've done, but it becomes self-condemnation. It's still focused on self, but it's like, look how bad I am. Look how broken I am. Look how sinful I am. It's like, I'm so bad. My life has a force field around it that will not allow the mercy of God to come through. And we think so much of ourselves, so much of our brokenness, that we diminish who God is and how strong his love and mercy is for us. A depressed pastor once wrote John Newton. And this was John Newton's response to him. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside of yourself. But you may be, and indeed you are improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a, a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also a low opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, they are full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience. This is what can happen in our own life. When pride just turns into self-condemnation and faith is reduced to wishful thinking. No confidence in who God is, but simply... I'm terrible. Like, why would God want to even be concerned with any problem I have? He has better things to do. And so prayers are thrown out, like wishful thinking that maybe it'll come true if he gets around to it. But that is not a humble and persistent faith. A humble and persistent faith, 
like what we see held up as an example for us in this woman's life is one that says, yes, Lord. Yes, I am who you say I am because you are who you say you are. Yes, Lord. It is true what you say. He says, I'm a sinner. For all have sinned. Yes, Lord. That's true. He says, you're broken. That you were created to reflect the glory of God. But you have fallen short of his glory. Yes, Lord. I am broken. He says that I am deserving of wrath. Ephesians 2, all of us used to live in that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Yes, Lord, I am who you say I am. I am a dog beneath the table. I don't deserve a seat at the table. But with your crumbs, I know who you are. I know who you've declared yourself to be. That you said that, that you are the Son of God. You said that you are the rock, that you are the door, that you are the life, that you are the light of the world. You say that you are my foundation and my shelter and my banner and my hope. Lord, you are who you said you are. Would your mercy fall even on who you say I am? And in his grace and mercy, God declares us sons and daughters, a child with a seat at the table of his mercy. See, a persistent, humble faith will look to God and say, yes, Lord, I am who you say I am. But it will draw near in confidence because he is who he says he is. And he is merciful and compassionate and good. This is what it means to walk in a persistent, humble faith. There's another application that I want us to consider in this moment, is by what criteria do you make judgment about another person? By what criteria do you make judgment about another person? And I want us to consider this, because at the beginning of chapter 7, Right? The religious leaders are looking at the disciples and they're like, unclean. They're not doing things right. They're not following our moral traditions. Not the Bible tradition that we've instituted. Therefore, they're unclean. And Jesus, I'm sorry, the disciples, we don't know what their heart was fully, but this woman is crying out. And rather than compassion toward her, they are annoyed and want her to go away. Jesus, make her stop bothering us. This woman who is crying out for her sick child. No compassion, no mercy toward her. Just annoyance. What did they see? Were they looking at her heart? Like Jesus had said, it's not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. Did they just see a Gentile woman? Or did they see a child made in the image of God? And that's why I said the stage was set for Jesus to help the disciples see that the same resistance they had been given by the religious leaders, they were now showing prejudice towards this Gentile woman. And Jesus again is going to get to the heart and then hold up her faith as an example of great faith. 
But what does that mean for us? What do we look at then as Christians? Are, are we reflecting the character of God that sees the heart and looks beyond just the outward appearance? Because our culture wants to look at the color of skin. We want to look at the language that is spoken. We want to look at the style of clothing. We want to look at the education. We want to look at the job someone holds. We want to look at where they live or what their economic standing is. And judgments are made. Or do we look at the heart? Do we look beyond the exterior? And do we press in to say Jesus says what comes out of the heart is what matters? Do we take the time to hear someone's heart? Or do we just make a judgment by what we see? Because what we're going to see in this next account is Jesus entering the world of a man who was not like him. He's going to enter the world of a deaf and mute man with compassion and with understanding. Look with me at verse 31. Then he, being Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. Now, if you remember this, the last time we were here is when the man who was demon-possessed with a legion of demons threw himself at the feet of Jesus. Jesus then cast out the legion of demons into the pigs who ultimately threw themselves off the hillside. The man wanted to come with Jesus, and Jesus was like, no, stay here and go and, and tell of the mercy you have received. And so the man went off to tell, and a great many believed, and now Jesus is back at Decapolis. And they brought to him, the people there then recognized him, bring to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him and, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Apaphratha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all these things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Can we put ourselves into this situation for a moment? in walking and following Jesus together to put ourselves in the shoes of this deaf man. Because I want us to, to taste, to feel the personal, compassionate, and dignified way in which Jesus interacts with him. Because this man being deaf and mute was brought before Jesus. And we don't know the exact motiv motivation, but Part of it, in my mind, makes me feel like he's the token sick person so that everybody in the crowd can see a miracle. Right? I wonder, if the man even knew what was happening, how would he have heard, how could they have told a man who cannot hear, who cannot speak, that this is Jesus, the one who claims to be the Messiah? So now, all of a sudden, this crowd is around. You are put face to face with this man who you have never seen before in your life, and everybody is watching and you realize all of a sudden that you are the center of attention. 
How will Jesus respond? And what Jesus does is he pulls them to the side privately, away from the crowd, away from the spectacle, away from being the center of attention, and he pulls him away to be personally in his presence. Now, what seems really weird at first takes on a whole different respect when we remember that this man is deaf. Like for, for those of us that can hear, experts say that 70 to 93% of all communication is nonverbal. It's in gestures, it's in tone, it's in volume, it's in posture. All of these things go into how we understand one another. But the same is true for the deaf community. My daughter is, is currently studying American Sign Language. And it's not just about the movement of hands. Like, if I were to stand up here and talk in monotone through the whole thing and just read the passage and talk through it, you would have no indication as to, like, what does this mean? Where's the emphasis? It's the same with sign languages. I have no idea how to do signs. I don't even know what to do with my hands. But if there's not a facial expression, if there's not an emotion behind it, it's as if you're speaking in a monotone. There's, there's no comprehension. There's as well the nonverbal. And so here's what I want us to see. Jesus is doing something that authenticates that he is the Messiah. He could have easily have said, be healed. And he would have been able to hear and speak without anything. And the crowd would have been amazed and astonished. He could have done that. He could have said nothing and the guy had been healed. Instead, how Jesus goes about healing him tells us something of God's character. He pulls him to the side privately. You look into his eyes, this stranger who now feels familiar. You see a depth, a comfort, a compassion. It's as if he knows you, like he really knows you. And, and he reaches out and he touches your ears. And you realize, yes, no. They don't work. I can't hear it. And then he touches his mouth. And then he touches your mouth. Like, no, I can't speak. It's a form of sign language, of communication. The, the man watches as Jesus inhales and then just sighs. A deep groaning, seeing that, that, that Jesus understands his pain. Where the crowds just passed by, Jesus drew near. He, he understands something of the brokenness of what it has meant to live with this disability. And he watches as Jesus moves his mouth. And then he hears the wind rustling through the trees. He hears the birds begin to to chirp in the background. I imagine his eyes growing wide, like wide, like murmurs begin to go through the crowd, and he can hear it. And I imagine him almost exclaiming, I can hear. But then he hears his voice, his tongue moving, his mouth ending words. He can speak. The crowd is astonished, they gasp, and I imagine Jesus smiling at the sheer joy that this man is experiencing. 
He is healed. Here's why I think this is such an amazing passage. God, Jesus, is declaring himself the Messiah. He has just authenticated it hundreds of years prior. It's in Isaiah chapter 35. It said that, sorry, I'm trying to find it. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This was Jesus proving that he is the Messiah. He has opened this man's ears. He has loosened his tongue. This is why the people said he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Why would they say that? Unless it's to say he even does this. This is him. This is the Messiah. This is to the glory of God. And yet, how he chose to do it. He could have just gone into the crowd and said, look at me. I can heal him. I am the Messiah. But instead, he pulls this man to the side and privately, personally, compassionately communicates with him. So that in this man's joy, he would be glorified. Just blows me away. It is the joyful song of a man once mute that glorifies God. God is glorified in our life when we find our satisfaction and joy in Him. It is that classic thesis statement if you are at all familiar with John Piper. God is glorified when we have our satisfaction and joy in Him. So let me ask you this. Do you despise or celebrate the unique way God works in your life? Think about this for a moment. Do you despise or celebrate the unique way God works in your life? And, and I ask the question because of this. God is the same. It says yesterday, today, and forever. He is exactly the same, unchanging. His character is true across time. And yet, how God works in our life is incredibly personal. Think of, of the, the examples we have already seen in Mark. The leper who was untouchable, who Jesus touches. The woman with the bleeding issue, who Jesus doesn't even say anything, but she reaches out and touches his cloak, and she is healed and receives mercy. To the man with the withered hand, who was called to, to stretch out his, his arm, and as he responded in faith, his hand was healed. To the paralyzed man, who was lowered through the, the roof, and Jesus, his initial response is, your sins are forgiven. In each instance, Jesus interacts differently with people. He has the power to do whatever he pleases, and yet he chooses to personally interact with each of us uniquely according to the consistency of his character. But here's the danger. So often, we become discouraged and dissatisfied with the way God is working in our life because of how we see him working in someone else's life. See, we always imagine the other person's joy to be a little bit more than ours. In their sorrows, their brokenness a little bit less. 
And then we see how God has answered their prayer or interacted in their life. And there can be jealousy. Right? And we say, why doesn't God do that in my life? Why do I continue to pray and I continue to cry out? What have they done that I haven't done? And because we're focused on the other person and how God is at work in their life, we lose sight of how God is at work in our life. And we need to reorient our hearts and our eyes to focus on the unchanging character of God that is true yesterday, today, and forever. So many people ask me, why is God doing this in my life? And I can't answer that. God works differently and at different times according to his own purposes and plans. But here's what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is he is who he says he is. That he is a good, compassionate, and just God. That his character is unchanging. Whatever you are walking through in this moment, your story is your own. How he is walking with you, how he is speaking to you, his patience, his silence, his words are all a full demonstration of his character in your life. As he writes his story for his glory and your joy. So look to him. Don't look to the person next to you and how God is working in their life. Look to him today, presently, for how he is working in your life. And one final application. As I think about how Jesus interacted with this man, that when I first read it, I'm like, why in the world did he stick his fingers in his ears? That seems weird. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, that was incredibly compassionate. And Jesus entering into this man's world to communicate with him with such gentleness and, and grace and understanding. It does cause me to ask the question of us. Do we speak with compassion and understanding? Part of the character of God that is on display in this passage is how Jesus enters this man's world, how he chooses to heal him for his glory and for this man's joy. But if we then, as Christians, are called to reflect the character and nature of God, then we should be asking ourselves as well, how do we seek, do we speak with the same compassion and understanding? Think about what this means. Starting simple, with a child. Do we speak with, with dominance or humility? Like if I speak to a child, I could stand over them like, how are you? Lording my height over them so I just feel like the jolly green giant. Right? It's intimidating. It can feel forceful and dominating. Or when you get down and you look a child in the eyes, what are you doing? You're entering that child's world, their space at their height. There's a compassion and an understanding there where you're, you're meeting them where, where they're at. But the same is true in, in how we speak to others. How do we speak? Or interact with someone who does not speak our mother tongue, our language. Do we speak with a language of superiority or surrender? Do we demand that others learn our language if we're to communicate? 
The reason I say this is because I'm part of the, the Facebook group for our neighborhood. And the comments are unbelievable how derogatory and mean and aggressive it is for people who do not know English as their first language. They live here. They need to learn English now. There is no sense of compassion. There is no sense of understanding. Like, I've had the privilege to, to, to live for almost a decade outside the U.S., having to learn other languages, which I am not gifted at. I don't enjoy. I, I can't do well, and I really, really like English. But there is an understanding of how hard that is. As Christians, we are called to enter into someone else's world with understanding and grace and mercy. How do we respond when someone's hurting? When someone is expressing pain, do we speak in, in the language of pain? Or do we speak in a language of privilege? See, because when someone's expressing hurt, when someone is expressing the pains they feel, do we say, oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you about my story. Or, or do we say, oh, you think that's bad? You shouldn't feel that way. There's no reason to feel that way. Let me tell you why you shouldn't feel that way. Or do we speak the language of pain? Do we speak the language of brokenness that said, let me understand. Let me understand your heart, your experiences. Tell me. And let us pursue Christ together. The list can go on and on. How do you speak to your teenager? How do teenagers speak to their parents? How do you speak to your spouse? How do you speak to your co-worker? Do we reflect the character of God in how we interact with others? Because the example that Christ has set for us is extremely personal, like personal and compassionate, filled with dignity. In all of this, we see in the gospel like just the gospel, what we're about to celebrate as we take communion, right? Who is Jesus? The creator of all things in heaven and on earth. And what did he do? Philippians 2. He humbled himself. He took on humanity, being fully God and fully man. And he humbled himself to, to the people that he had created. And he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He laid down his life. This is the example of Christ and the gospel that we celebrate every single week. Our lives should reflect this in every possible way, in every interaction that we have, that we don't judge someone by the exterior, but we look at the heart, and, and we move towards their heart with compassion, with understanding, to point them to the hope that we have in Christ. This is the gospel. This is what we proclaim. This is what we believe. This is what we are called to live out and to demonstrate and declare in every possible way. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you. Your interactions with people are mysterious, Lord. We don't understand. You are good and you are sovereign. So, Lord, in humility, we surrender before you. And we remember that we are who you say we are. Both as a sinner who is broken, deserving wrath. And, Lord, you are who you say you are. You are God in human flesh. You are our joy, our rock, and our salvation. And because of your perfect life and your death on the cross and your resurrection, through faith in you, you declare us to be sons and daughters by your mercy and by your grace. So, Lord, I pray that your word will be a foundation beneath our feet to say yes, Lord. I am who you say I am, and you are who you say you are. Be glorified. And in Jesus' name, amen.